The Bible predicts that the whole of the world, despite national and cultural distinctions, will in the end time be consolidated under the powerful and controlling dictatorship of Antichrist. This system of world oneness and domination will be held together by several normal influences that unite all societies. These would include politics, which of course Antichrist will tightly control, economics, which likewise he and his administration will tightly manipulate, military power, and he will have vast military power, and finally religion. Religion is one of those influences that helps to unite a people. The religious aspect of Antichrist's ruling order is described to us somewhat in symbolic terms in the book of the Revelation, the 17th chapter. We're not going to do a verse-by-verse analysis of this, but I invite you to turn there and see what John saw as he describes to us what might be termed the religious side of Babylon, this final world order that John sees here in these final chapters of the book of Revelation. Chapter 17 of Revelation says, And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. And those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of unclean things of her immorality. And upon her forehead a name was written, a a mystery, quote, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth, close quote. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered greatly. John was left in awe by the sight that was before him there in this wilderness vision. What we have here is a symbolic presentation of the culminating ecumenical religious system which will cooperate with Antichrist on a worldwide basis in the end times. Idolatry, immorality, demonic activity, and pageantry are all united in this obscene and monstrous religious system. This prostitute that is seen here riding upon the scarlet beast, pictured at once royally attired and grossly wicked, is the absolute antithesis 
of the bride, the Lamb's pure and holy wife, who is introduced to us in just a couple of chapters in this book. The push for oneness of religious identity and experience has been a strong one, particularly in the last 40 years, since the beginning of the World Council of Churches. You may recall that back in the 60s, the World Council of Churches organized, along with uh, its United States uh, affiliate organization, the National Council of Churches, what was called the Council on Church Union, C-O-C-U. It was called COCU, though some people called it CUCU. It was formed in order to encourage the eventual, not only cooperation, but the unification of various religious bodies. Mainly it worked with the, the main line denominations. It failed in its attempts. Uh, It is still around, but is not very active today. Other things have surpassed it. Today, in the beginning of the 90s, at a time when there is a lot of emphasis in various parts of society, of, of people and organizations and things coming together, there is a new emphasis on the people of faith coming together. The people of faith whatever they believe in. They're represented by theologian Harvey Cox, for example, one of the great uh, universities out in the East. Harvey Cox might be better called an untheologian. He is extremely liberal in his perspective. He wrote a book not too long ago entitled Many Mansions, subtitled A Christian Encounter with Other Faiths. In a review of this book in Psychology Today about a year ago, the reviewer, Elizabeth Stark, says, Cox argues that appreciation for facets of another religion can enhance one's own and shows how we can be inspired by other faiths. My, that sounds so good. It sounds so American to talk that way. It sounds so up-to-date, so modern to say it. It is in step with the age in which we live. For we are living in a time when tolerance, cooperation, and pluralism are the American way. What is actually happening, in my opinion, as we enter the 90s, is that the groundwork is being laid and initial steps are being taken toward the apostasy which the Bible long ago predicted would occur in the last times. I'd like for you to turn into the New Testament to the book of 2 Thessalonians and notice this word apostasy used by the Apostle Paul. There were some who had come to this city that we've been studying about on Sunday mornings. They had come to this city in the months since Paul had been there, and they were teaching that the day of the Lord had already come. And so Paul is going to refute that in this second epistle, and he says very simply here in the first part of the second chapter, the first part of verse 3 in the second chapter, let no one in any way deceive you For it will not come, that is, the day of the Lord, 
will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And then he says, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So the apostle tells us that before the day of the Lord, the time of final judgment comes, there are two things that have to take place. Now these are not things that must take place before the rapture of the church. Keep that in mind. These are things that take place before the day of the Lord, the time of judgment. And those two things he names are the apostasy and the unveiling of the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. The one seems to precede the other. Apostasy simply means revolt. It is a defection from among those who are professing Christians toward deep false doctrine. Again, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, the apostle addresses this same theme. 1 Timothy 4 and verse 1, he says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in the later times, Some will fall away from the faith. Here is the verb form of apostasy. Some will apostatize from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines originating with demons. That's what he's saying. By means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. In other words, their leaders... The human instruments of these demonic spirits will be people without morals. People without any sense of ethics about them. Their conscience will be completely inactive and seared. No sensitivity there. He says, who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth which seems to indicate that these people will bring with their, their false teaching either salvation by works, including doing these kinds of things, or a certain asceticism about life. But he predicts that in the latter times, the later times of this age, there will come a falling away from the faith. This is exactly what we're talking about tonight. The final apostasy. What is it that will characterize this final form of world religion, this apostate church? Well, I would like to give you several characteristics tonight. I've chosen six of them. I don't know, somehow that seemed like the right number. There are six of them I'd like for us to look at briefly before we go on our way. What characterizes the apostate church, this coming world religion? Number one. A denial of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Turn please to 2 Peter chapter 2. This epistle is written to believers to warn about false teachers. Already active, of course, in the first century. Peter says in verse 1, But false prophets also arose among the people as well as the prophets who spoke from God that he's just spoken about. Just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. And now he suggests in broad categories what they will deny. 
denying the master, the word literally means the sovereign Lord, who bought them, and as a result of this they will bring swift destruction upon themselves. He says many will follow their sensuality. So tied together with their denial of Jesus Christ is sensuous, lustful kind of living. And it says, because of them the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, so we have here another uh, characteristic of these teachers who deny Jesus Christ. It is greed. They will exploit you with false words. And then he warns again of the judgment that is coming to them. In the first place, this coming world religion will deny the uniqueness of Jesus Christ as sovereign Lord. There will be a denial of his deity, a denial of his unique revelation as the incarnate God. Now this is not new, of course. This is something that believers in the first century dealt with. John writes about this in the epistle of 1 John, and he says in the fourth chapter, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. When you listen to some Christian radio stations today, you become alarmed. When you listen to some of the stuff that comes over so-called Christian television, some of the stuff, it is absolutely nauseating. And there are people who take in everything they hear as though that person is certainly speaking from God. What an important word John gives. Do not believe every spirit. That is, the prophets who come. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world, and by this you know the Spirit of God Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. In other words, John is saying this this spirit is already at work, even in the first century, Eventually, it will become fully exposed and revealed and will be culminated in the person of the Antichrist. But even then, the same spirit was at work, the spirit of denying that Jesus Christ is the incarnate God. In chapter 3, verse 22, he says, Well, my computer wrote down the wrong verses here. I'm going to have to get a new computer. Turn over to 2 John 7. I'm not going to take time to look for those right now. 2 John verse 7. John says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. So there's the point. This coming world religion will be a culmination of what has been true of false teaching since the first century. And that is a denial of Jesus as God, as the sovereign Lord. But accompanying that, accompanying that, says Peter, back now in 2 Peter 2, is a denial of Jesus Christ's sufficient sacrifice for sin. He says that there will be a denial of the master 
who bought them. Well, that's an interesting phrase there. It is one of the arguments used against the idea of a particular or limited atonement. Because Peter clearly says here that this sacrifice of the Lord, this purchase price, this atonement of the Lord, by which he purchased a people, was also sufficient for the false teachers. A denial of the Lord who bought them, it says. There are people today who say that Jesus, by his death, set a good example for the rest of us. But they deny that his was a vicarious death. That he died in the place of sinners. And they put in place of that doctrine salvation by works or salvation by self-fulfillment or self-realization. Let me just wrap this up by saying once again that one characteristic of the coming religious system is a denial of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, and we see that all around us. Secondly, there will be an exaltation of a new Messiah in the coming world religion. Let's go again to 2 Thessalonians, the second chapter and verse 4 this time. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 4. Regarding this man of lawlessness, the apostle says, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Now, if we had time, we would turn to Revelation 13, verse 8, where it is said there that he will cause the masses of his empire to worship him, those whose names are not written in the book of life. This is Antichrist, and in that coming religious order, there will be the exaltation of a new Messiah, someone who will come to finish what Jesus failed to finish. Uh, even what Muhammad did not do. He will come to fully reveal God. He will be God in the flesh, or maybe it will be put this way, that the God consciousness in him will be fully manifested. And he will be unique among all men because he has risen to that level where the God consciousness in him has now caused him to be as deity itself. The coming world religious system will not only deny Jesus Christ for who he is and what he has done, but it will exalt the Antichrist and worship him as its Messiah, as its new God. A third characteristic of this coming world religious system is found in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 6, a verse we've already read. Did you notice it? Where it says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints. Characteristic number three is a persecution of believers in the true God. This coming world religious system will persecute the true people of God at that time. 
So much so that it will cause many of them to lose their lives. This is confirmed for us in chapter 20 and verse 4. We now come to the first resurrection, as it is termed. And John sees thrones and those that sat upon them and judgment was given to them. And then he says, Revelation 20, verse 4, And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And it says they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And so John, as he in this vision, sees a great multitude of people who had lost their heads, who had been beheaded for the sake of Jesus Christ in the coming tribulation period. This world religious system, while it will call itself Christian in some sense, it will be under the label of Christendom, will also be a system that will turn upon true believers in the living God and persecute them without mercy. A fourth characteristic of this coming world religious system is a ridicule of Christ's return. For this, let's go back to 2 Peter and this time to chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 and beginning in verse 3. Know this first of all, says Peter, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Now it says here that there is going to come in the last days an emphasis, a noted emphasis upon a mockery of the return of Jesus Christ. Well, people who have been unbelievers have long mocked that. But I think it's very interesting that we are seeing a, a new emphasis on this very point. I think that's in part because the teaching of the coming of Jesus Christ which has always been a part of evangelical churches, has now become better known out in there in the culture at large. They're hearing more of what we say, and that causes them to respond more. But I think there's another element, and that is the end of this century and the end of this millennium. Uh, You will see, and there was even this last week, articles in the paper anticipating the fact that as we get closer to 2000, there are going to be more and more people, they say, talking about the end of the world. Just expect them. It's going to happen, they say, and the implication is brush it off. Don't worry about it. It happened, they say, about 1000 AD too. I don't know if they have the newspaper clippings from then or what. But it happened then, they say, and they say around every turn of the century, there's this brand new emphasis that the end is near. The apocalypse is upon us. Armageddon is at hand. Well, in fact, this is true, that there is a renewed talk at the end of each century, and particularly at the end of a millennium. 
<clears throat> but it's interesting to me to note that as this talk increases, the denial, the mockery, the jeering, the, the jibing of those who believe in it only increases more. There's a ridicule of the return of Jesus Christ. And Peter says this arises with this excuse on the part of the culture at large. They say, look, everything's continued like it always has. Nothing before has ever intervened. There's a uniformity to all of history. You know, we evolved out of this little bit of whatever back then, and nothing's ever happened to change that. And they refuse to acknowledge, it says, that God has intervened before. It says in verse 5, when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. That doesn't mean that somehow they fail to read the clippings. It means that they refuse to take note of something. That by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. There are two things that seem to be uh, the point here. They refuse to acknowledge the creative activity of God in the beginning, along with his intervention at the flood of Noah. He goes on to talk about the fact that the world was destroyed by water at one time and someday will be destroyed by the intervention of God again, this time by fire. But here's the point. He's saying that along with a denial of the return of Jesus Christ will be a denial of God's creative activity and a denial of God's intervention by the flood. How I would delight if Noah's Ark could be found. Not because it would prove to me the Bible, not at all, but just to watch the liberals dance around that ark trying to explain it as they seek to deny that God ever intervened, that there was ever a Noah, that there was ever an ark built. I would love to see them try to do that, and they will. Because everything's always continued like it always has been. There's been no intervention of God. And Jesus Christ is not coming. We have to make our own utopia in the world. And we have to worship this Messiah who's here, they will say. Number five. The final world religion will be characterized by a form of religion without any life-transforming power. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Beginning in verse 1, again, the apostle focuses on the last days. He says, difficult times will come. Literally, he says, times hard to deal with. For men will be lovers of self, and he goes on to describe 1990, and a lot of other times, I'm sure, but especially our day. And then in verse 5 he says, also, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, he says, avoid such men as these. That final world religion will have a form of godliness, there will be a certain sense of religion of liturgy, of, of uh, outward show, exhibition, of, uh, of worship. It will be pageantry. It will all be there. All the outward forms, you see, will be there, but there will be no power to it. No power to transform the life. No power to save. 
There's no reality in it, is what he is saying. That's how it will be characterized. And then number six, there will be a rejection of doctrine for what is self-pleasing. That will characterize this final world religion. Look in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. He says, verse 3, The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away, that is, as an act of their will, turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. So there will be a definite rejection of doctrine in the last days for what is self-pleasing, what tickles the ear, what people enjoy hearing, what flatters the human spirit. Oh, are we ever living in a day like that today? When there are masses who are turning away from the truth, they don't want to hear what the Bible has to say, but they want to hear religious teachers who will tell them the things that compliment them, that please them, that build up humanity, that show us the potential that resides in all of us, the God consciousness that is there, how we're all in touch with all of nature, holistic teaching, interconnectedness with all things, the Mother Earth, and all of that. Today we have before us... <clears throat> What may well be at least a part of the glue that's going to hold this world religion together is called the New Age Movement. If you want to know more about it, one of the electives, the next four weeks, we'll talk about it in detail. The New Age Movement is the fastest growing religious movement in the United States today. And it is infiltrating not only... Uh, off-brand kinds of, of religious movements, but it's infiltrating mainstream churches. I could take you to churches right here in Roseville, which today taught New Age doctrine. You say, well, what is that? Well, I have a little booklet in which I'm just going to read a couple of paragraphs that sort of gives you a taste for it. Interestingly, this is a booklet by a nun and comes from the Evangelical Sisterhood of Mary. Interesting, isn't it? Interesting title for their group. But I have never read anything that exposes the heart of the New Age movement uh, any better than this nun does as she talks about the New Age philosophy. She says, The New Age movement aspires after a new and perfect world. But if this goal is to be attained, there will have to be a paradigm shift, that is, a change in the conventional way of thinking, according to the New Age philosophy. Instead of the previous analytical mode of thought, corresponding to the linear and mechanistic conception of the world, there is to be a new holistic perspective. The belief in the interconnectedness of all things, or the doctrine of wholeness, all things are interdependent and according, accordingly need to be regarded holistically. Every individual feels part of nature and of the whole cosmos, a microcosmos of the macrocosmos. Rational thinking, which proceeds analytically and critically 
and which form the basis of scientific method is to give way to synthetical thinking and intuitive knowledge based on non-rational experience. Have you ever heard of quantum physics? It ties together with this. He says, New Age philosophy aims at reconciling all opposites. Science and occultism are placed on a par. All ethical values collapse. Good and evil no longer exist. All is one. This explains the move towards a synthesis of all religions. For New Agers, the highest goal of man is to find his happiness. Performance and output used used to be generally considered the criterion for living. Now the main emphasis is on personal satisfaction and success. Fear of coming apocalyptic events is therefore channeled into escapism. To a utopian world society where there are no tensions. In other words, they're saying that people like us who teach in the second coming of Jesus Christ and the end of the age are just escapists. That what we need to be doing is channeling our energies toward a man-made utopia, which only man can make. Well, there will be a continual rejection of doctrine and an acceptance of what tickles the ear, just as the apostle said there would be. There will be other glues and adhesives that will be a part of this one world religion. But... uh, I believe that New Age thought is a key component of it. Now, of course, in one sense, apostasy and the spirit of Antichrist have always been present in the age. But what is predicted in the final climactic revolt against God and reveal truth will sweep the masses into the waiting arms of Antichrist. It might be helpful to keep in mind that apostasy, a revolt against the truth, which we're talking about here, is not the same thing as heresy, technically. A heresy is a false idea which Satan uses as a snare even for true believers. Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 25 and 26 talks about that. Apostasy is not identical with all doctrinal errors, for even believers can have doctrinal errors. Probably in some ways, most of us, all of us, are misunderstanding some things. Doctrinal error can come out of ignorance, for example. Both heresy and doctrinal error can be found in believers. Not in us, of course, but in other believers. However, apostasy is different. Apostasy, which will find its culmination in this coming world religion, is a deliberate rejection of the truth, and it is never characteristic of a true believer. And when one becomes an apostate, one who is outwardly a professing Christian of some sort, and then he turns from that and apostatizes, there is no remedy for him. Only judgment awaits the apostate. And that is why Jude speaks so forcefully as he does in verses 11 through 16 of his little epistle. And he says basically, Woe to them! 
In Revelation chapter 17, there is ultimate judgment of this one world religion. And victory is given to the Lamb and to those who are the followers of the Lamb. What are we to do in light of the coming world religion? Let me just give you three quick thoughts. Number one, we're to live a godly life. We are to be diligent to be found by Jesus when he comes, as Peter says, in peace, spotless, and blameless. That's what we're to do. We're to be sure that our lives are holy lives. We're to be found by him when he comes in peace, spotless, and blameless. Furthermore, Peter tells us that we are to be on guard. He says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard. Be on your guard against the kind of false teaching we're talking about, and don't be sucked into it. Don't be allured by it, but recognize it for what it is. And finally, as the people of God, we are to preach the truth. By preaching the truth, we are doing the best thing we can do to combat the error. I recognize there are times to expose it specifically, as we're going to do with New Age in particular over the next few weeks. But the best thing we can do is just to preach the truth. Preach what is true. Preach the genuine Word of God, because that's what God uses to do His work. God, right now, we need to be patient. God is patient, and He is saving people. He's calling out people yet. But one day, God's patience, God's long-suffering will come to an end, and God will deal in judgment. In the meantime, we are to live a godly life. We're to be on guard, and we're to keep believing and to keep preaching the truth of God in our generation. Let's pray. Dear Lord, living at this particular time in the history of the world, as best as we can understand it from our finite and limited perspective, but living at this time is an exciting thing because we believe that truly the end of the age is upon us. I pray that we will not be like those who just go about their daily routines giving no thought to that like those who in the days of Noah just went on about their normal activity, not realizing that judgment was close. May we as your people, the ones whom you've graciously called out from the world, may we live this week godly lives, being on guard in our minds and our spirits against that which is false. Deliver us from the lie. And may we be faithful in proclaiming the truth in love to those who need to hear it, because that's what you use to call others to salvation. I pray that as we live through these days, despite the fact that they are days hard to deal with, that we may be your faithful people, and that our hearts may burn with a fervent love for Jesus for the truth, and for one another. And may our hearts be also burdened for the lost, seeking as it were to snatch them out of the flames by our persistent and consistent witness to them.
I pray that we as a church will be faithful. God, deliver this church from ever, as long as you leave us here, from ever succumbing to the lie. May we be a true church, a pure bride for Jesus Christ, a bride that fervently loves its bridegroom. This we pray in the name of our Savior and our Lord, our sovereign Lord who bought us. Amen.